Romans 13. Paul's writing this letter 57 AD or, or thereabouts, which, which means he's been serving the Lord. He's been saved and serving the Lord for like 20 years by the time he writes this letter. He's been writing letters like this for almost 10 years, assuming that you think that he started with Galatians, which I do. Um, and throughout his writing, all of the things that he's done, all of the places that he's gone, the churches that he's planted, the people that he's seen saved, he still comes across as a pretty humble guy, doesn't he? And he's forthcoming about his past sin. He's transparent about his present struggles. And, and he's clear, he's so clear that whatever good he does wasn't his idea. He does what he does in obedience to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells us that again and again. He's a humble guy. But at the same time, at this point in his life, Paul knows that his walk, 20 years and, and, and still going, he knows it's something worth looking at. He knows that it's something worth imitating. Paul's humble, but humble is just another word for realistic. Humble is not self-deprecating. It's just honest self-assessment. And Paul knows realistically, objectively, he's just a guy trying to get it right with Jesus, but he's getting it right way more often than he's getting it wrong. So he's not bragging when he says things like, follow my example, Philippians 3.17. Use my life as a pattern. Imitate me, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul knows, objectively, we could do a lot worse than taking him as our role model. Other than Jesus, I don't know of many people who are better. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because Paul did imitate Christ, didn't he? Pattern his life after Christ. And the way Paul learned to do that, the way Paul learned to imitate Christ, was he learned to think like him. Paul did what we've been talking about, what he's been talking about for the last chapter and a half. Not being conformed to the world, Romans 12, 2. Rejecting the world's thinking, but being transformed by the renewing of his mind. Learning to think like Jesus. And choosing to act like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's been the last chapter and a half if you're joining us in progress. And it's going to be the next chapter and a half. The rest of 13, all of 14, the beginning of 15. With Paul continuing as to give us example after example. If we're thinking like Jesus, we won't do that. We'll do this instead. If we're walking in the Spirit, if we're putting on the mind of Christ, we'll stop focusing on this stuff over here, and we'll start being all about this stuff over there. That's been the last chapter and a half, right? Not selfishness, but service. Not individuality, but community. Not hypocrisy, but authenticity. Not vengeance, but forgiveness. Not rebellion, but obedience. That was last week. But all of that can be summed up, Paul says, in one word. Love. If we want to think like Jesus, if we want to act like Jesus, we need to love. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to love like Jesus. And that brings us to our text this morning. Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. Owe no one anything except this one thing, to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law, all of the law. For the commandments, the ones you know, you shall not commit adultery, not murder, steal, shall not bear false witness, shall not covet, 
Love covers them, and if there are any other commandments, they're all summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Following Jesus, Paul just said, Paul has said before, Paul continues to say, following Jesus is all about love. Worship, worshiping as followers of Jesus, is all about love. And it seems like Paul just said that because he just said that. He made that point a few verses ago, Romans 12 So I guess it was a chapter ago. But Romans 12, verse 9, he said, let love be without hypocrisy. Or turn it around and express it as a positive, love with authenticity. And then he goes on to give us a half dozen or so examples. Not this, but that. Less like this, more like that. And he really gets into detail, doesn't he? Verse 9 to 19, he lays down some, some specifics. He gets super concrete. Why? He's challenging us. He's challenging us to consider our ways, to look at who we are. He's challenging us to do better. Not by our strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Paul knows how we are. We still sin. We're still selfish. And he's not lording over again and again in his letters. He says, me too. Places like 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I'm just like you, only more so. I'm more like you than you are. Paul says, I know how deep the desire to sin runs in you. It runs in me. I know how strong the urge to, for self-protection and self-promotion and self-righteousness runs in you. I'm a guy just like you. But I'm also a guy, Paul continues. I'm also a guy. He says in the very next verse in 1 Timothy 1, I'm also a guy learning love. I'm a guy learning love. I'm learning it from Jesus I'm learning it from Jesus' people. I'm learning love, Paul says. I'm learning to choose love. I'm learning to not be conformed, but be transformed. I'm learning it's not about me, but it's about others. I'm learning, Paul says again and again. And so are we. I hope we are, at least. We started learning love the very first time Jesus revealed himself to us. Whether that was in his word, whether that was looking at creation, whether that was looking at people freaking us out, confusing us with their love, challenging everything we thought we knew about how the world worked. However the journey began, it brought us here this morning. It brought us together learning to love like Jesus, trying to unlearn the thoughts and philosophies and theories of the world, trying to learn God's love, trying to learn God. Trying to learn to love God, love others in his name with his strength, with his love. You ever think about it that way? That's why we're here. That's what we're doing here. Learning love. At least that's the idea. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And it's not always easy, is it? It's a struggle. it's, it's, It's a bunch of struggles stacked together. It's the flesh versus spirit. It's the sin nature versus the mind of Christ. Another struggle that we face on this journey, learning to love God and love people and love people to God, hopefully, another struggle on this journey are the people who have no interest in being on this journey with us. What do we do when we go out to love people and they just don't love us back? I think that's what the Lord would have us talk about a little this morning. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. That was the command from the beginning, Paul said. The beginning of Israel, at least. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Love your neighbor? That was not a new idea the first time that Jesus spoke it. It was an ancient idea. Love your neighbor goes back to Leviticus 19.18. It's law of Moses stuff. It wasn't a new idea when Jesus proclaimed it. At the same time, it wasn't until Jesus came that obeying it was possible. Right? It wasn't until Jesus that we were able to believe on him, be forgiven, be filled with the Holy Spirit that we might obey. The, the first two were always possible. People in the Old Testament were saved. How? By believing on the Redeemer that God had promised to send. They could be saved. They could be forgiven. But it, it's, a new, it's a new thing that we enjoy. It's a new benefit that we experience being filled with the Spirit that we can conquer our sin nature, that we can walk in obedience. It wasn't until Jesus came that anyone was really able to do everything Paul is talking about, able to be transformed, able to reject the world, able to say no to self, able to love. I heard a pastor say once that's a Christian superpower, which I think is why Dakota was running around in the halls with a mask and a cape. I'm not sure. Love is our superpower. I, I think that works. I think I can go with that. But it begs the question then, what's the limit of our love? Because every superpower has a limit, right? Superman has kryptonite. Green Lantern has the color yellow, which somebody told me after first service isn't a thing anymore, which, I mean, it's a world gone mad now. <laughs> Nothing is sacred. But, but does our superpower have a limit? Does love have a limit? What do, we, what do we do, for example, when the people that we're loving or that we're trying to love refuse our love, reject our love? What do we do when they retaliate against us, even when we're trying to love? So we're narrowing the question a little bit now. Because it's a question that several of you asked a couple weeks ago. We were talking about forgiveness versus vengeance back in chapter 12. And a question that many of us struggle with in some way, shape, or form as followers of Jesus Christ, is there a limit? Is there a line? Is there a point where we get to say, all right, enough, I've tried to love and it's not working, so I'm going to stop? Frame the question that way, it's an easy no, right? If someone asks, is there a limit to our ability to love, our capacity to love, our call to love, we don't really have to think about it. You ask the question that way, the answer is clearly no, because what's the source of our love? Where does our love come from? God. Right on. God, whose capacity for love is what? Infinite, inexhaustible, unlimited, unfailing? How do you prove that? God loved us. <laughs> While we were sinners, God loved us, and he keeps loving us. He loves us today even when we trample on the relationship, even when we abuse or ignore the friendship. We're friends of God. And when we don't act like it, he keeps on loving us. He never stops loving us. And he calls us to do the same. He empowers us to do the same, to keep on loving no matter what. Where God guides, God provides. God's called us to love. He'll supply the love. So in that sense... 
In, in that sense, the only limit to our love, the love we're commanded to have, is our obedience. Our willingness. If we're willing, he's able. If we're willing, he'll make us able. If we're willing, we can love, because God will supply it. But that's not a real question, is it? Because we actually covered that question a couple weeks ago when we talked about forgiveness. Forgiveness being one aspect of love. Forgiveness is one way love manifests itself, one way it expresses itself. Which is why we know we always need to. We always need to forgive. Why? Because we always can forgive. Why? Because it's love and love comes from God. Forgiveness has no limit. And remember, we, we, we talked about Peter. We went back to Peter and Peter's conversation with Jesus. And Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive, Lord? Is seven good? Seven's good, right? You ever, you ever wonder why Peter guessed seven? This, this was new for me this week. So, so if, if you know this, you're ahead of me. I always thought it was the number of completeness, because that's usually what seven is. Turns out the rabbis of Peter's day taught the number was three. They actually had a number. The number was three. Forgive once, forgive twice, forgive three times. If the person comes back and does it again, that's on them. You don't have to forgive anymore. So Peter took that number, multiplied by two, and added one. He doubled it and added one for good measure, which, by the way, is my recipe for buying ice for a party. I'm serious. Think about how much you think you're going to need. Double it and throw in one more bag for good measure. Try it. It works. Peter says to Jesus, hey, the rabbis say three, but I want to sound really spiritual, so I doubled their answer and added one. That's good, right? If I forgive that much, you're going to say, have you met my friend Peter? Do you see how holy and righteous he is? What's Jesus' response? He says, I don't know about holy and righteous. You'll have to ask the rabbis about that. But I can tell you forgiving seven times is nothing. That's not love. How many times do I have to forgive for it to be love, Jesus? All of them. We have to forgive all of them. Why? God's love doesn't run out. That's forgiveness. But we already knew that. We don't like it, always, but we knew it. We talked about it. Here's what we didn't talk about. Or if we did, we barely scratched the surface. What about reconciliation? What about the restoration of the relationship after whatever needed to be forgiven is forgiven? Does that have a limit? See, we're narrowing the question down even more now. Peter didn't ask that question, but again, several of, of the people here did when we were talking a couple weeks ago. And sometimes I ask that question. When someone hurts me financially, physically, verbally, relationally, I know I have to forgive them because that's what love does, and I'm a pastor and stuff, so I'm supposed to know that. I've got to forgive them. That's what Jesus did. That's what love does. I can't stop loving them, but do I need to go back to loving them the exact same way as before? See, that's a different question, right? And if we frame the question that way, we really want to have a different answer, don't we? When someone hurts us, do we have to go back to loving them the same way we were before? We're going to spend the rest of the morning, the rest of our time digging into that. And, and even before I finish asking the question, some of you were saying, uh-uh, no, no, no. I could see your mouth, no. 
someone hurts me, I don't need to go back to loving them the same way. I'm not going to go back to loving them the same way. I don't know why you need the rest of the morning to talk about it. (laughs) And I hear you. I hear you. I might even agree with you. If I knew exactly what happened to you, I'd probably be completely on board with what you're thinking. Even so, I'm going to ask, can we tap the brakes? Can we hedge that answer just a little bit? Can can we back off an absolute, unequivocal no, an irrevocable never? Can we pencil in, just for the moment, not necessarily? Because this is really important. We want to get this right. And to make sure that we're answering the question right, we need to look at it a little bit harder. And if we just say no and move on, we won't because we'll be moving on. Do I have to reconcile with the person who hurt me? That's the real question. Do I have to go back to talking to them? Do I have to go back to being friends with them? Do I have to go back to loving them the same way before what happened happened? Before whatever went down, went down. I'm going to suggest that God's answer is maybe not necessarily. And for for those of you holding out for an absolute no understand if we look at this question in the context of church history, especially recent church history, just getting to not necessarily is big. Because there's been a lot of damage done to people as a result of people being told that the answer is an absolute yes. You have to reconcile. No questions asked. I don't want to think about the number of people hurt physically, verbally, financially, all the, all the ways people can be hurt only to be told, turn the other cheek. Forgive the person who hurt you, then forget it ever happened. And if it happens again, well, that's just the way it goes, but you got to go back and you got to continue the relationship as if it never happened because that's what Jesus told you to do. No, it's not. And it's really important that we understand that it's not. It, I'm getting excited, but if you know someone who, who was told that's what turn the other cheek meant, or, or, or if you are someone who was told that's what turn the other cheek meant, you know how important this is. Turn the other cheek does not mean we're required to go back to the people who hurt us, or allow people to continue hurting us, or to give people another chance to hurt us. In context, because context is king, In context, turn the other cheek is about forgiveness and vengeance. It does not commit us to pursuing reconciliation with the person who hurt us. Turn the other cheek reminds us forgiveness is mandatory. I've said it before, but the flesh hates it, so we keep saying it. Forgiveness is mandatory, whether whether the person is sorry or not, whether they apologize or not. Whether they blame you for what they did or not, it doesn't matter. Forgiveness is mandatory. If it helps, think of it this way. God doesn't forgive innocent people. He forgives guilty people. I'm going to say it again for people on their phones. God doesn't forgive innocent people. He forgives guilty people. And he calls us to do the same. Whether we feel like it or not, whether we feel ready or not, there's no prerequisite, there's no getting ready for forgiving someone. Jesus and Stephen were forgiving others for the thing that was happening to them at the time while they were forgiving. Jesus was forgiving the people crucifying him while he was hanging on the cross. Stephen was forgiving the people stoning him while they were chucking rocks at his head. 
Forgiveness is simply a choice. Andre Sue Peterson, who writes for World Magazine, says it this way. Forgiveness is a brutal mathematical transaction done with fully engaged faculties. This isn't about emotion, it's about reason. It's not about a feeling, it's about a decision that it's my pain instead of yours. I eat the debt. I absorb the misery I wanted to dish out on you and you go scot-free. At least as far as my heart goes. At least as far as my desire for vengeance goes. But all of that being true, and it is, the relationship still might be changed forever. Because forgiveness is something I decide. It, it, it takes God, but forgiveness is something that I decide. Reconciliation takes me and the person that I'm forgiving. Forgiveness is mandatory. Reconciliation is discretionary because I can only control one of the two people in the transaction. I can only decide for me that it's something I want to pursue. Forgiveness is about me, my heart, my decision to not pursue vengeance, my choice to not take what happened out on them, to not take what happened out on people who look like them or remind me of them, to not take what happened out on me for being dumb enough to get close to them. Forgiveness is just letting it go. And it's not contingent on anyone or anything other than, like I said, God who makes it possible. It's just my obedience. If I'm willing, God is able. All I have to do is say, God, I'm willing. He'll take it. He'll do the heavy lifting. If I'm willing, God will supply the love to make forgiveness possible. i got to choose it. He won't do it for me. But all I have to do is choose it. It only requires my obedience reconciliation for it to be real, for it to have legs, for it to mean anything, takes two. The person who was hurt and the person who did the hurting. It takes both of us being willing. It takes both of us participating. If you want to say that another way, reconciliation, the restoration of relationship after someone hurt me, has two necessary elements. My forgiveness, their repentance. Some people object to that. It's funny. Some people object to the idea that reconciliation is even an option. Not going to think about it, don't talk about it, I'm not going to do it. Some people resist the idea that it is an option and that it's not a mandate. Because some people get all hung up on this idea of forgive and forget. And they resist the notion of making, recon uh, making repentance a prerequisite to reconciliation. They'll try to tell you it's not biblical, that all we need to do is love, and love is unconditional. Except loving unconditionally doesn't mean that actions don't have consequences. There's an easy way to demonstrate that. How does God love us? Perfectly? Completely? Eternally? How does he forgive us? Same answer, perfectly, completely, eternally. But in forgiving us, get this, in forgiving us, God never promises to remove the consequences of our sin from us. When I served at a church on the East Coast, I had an opportunity to meet David Berkowitz, who you might know as the son of Sam Murderer, if you're my age. Mass murderer, cold-blooded killer, met Jesus in prison. Uh, sold out for Jesus now. Loves Jesus. He's forgiven. 
He's as forgiven of his sin as you are and, and, and I am. He's never getting out of prison. That's the consequence of his sin. The point being, the loss of relationship or a radical adjustment to the terms of the relationship might be a consequence of someone's sin, even after forgiveness. Here's another way to get there. We'll kind of triangulate in on the, on the same point. Love doesn't require us to pursue close fellowship. How do I know? A lot of ways. Let's pick one. 2 Timothy. Paul's last letter, presumably the letter that he's writing when he's the most mature, the most sanctified. He warns Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.14, Alexander the coppersmith, that doesn't sound right. It's got to be 2 Timothy 4.14. Paul warns Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You must also beware of him, for he's greatly resisted our words. Love him, but from a distance, Paul tells his protege. Love him, don't get close to him. Love him, beware of him. Love him, do not trust him. He says something similar earlier in the same letter. He says in 2 Timothy 3.5, Tim, you're going to come across people, maybe you'll even get close to people, who have a form of godliness while denying the power thereof. They look Christian, they talk Christian, but deep down they deny the power of God. From such people, turn away. Love them because you got to. Don't get close to them because you really shouldn't. And you'll regret it if you do. Love, forgiveness, these things are mandatory. Fellowship, relationship, friendship, are not. Easy to see that in Paul's life. Easy to see that in Jesus' life. How many times in Jesus' life do we see him resist the crowd, walk away from people wanting to hang on to him or wanting to hurt him? John 7, Jesus' brothers say, hey, let's go to Jerusalem, because Jesus had brothers. And Jesus says, no, there's people there who want to hurt me. Jesus was willing to be hurt, but not by them and not then. Matthew 12, Jesus walks away from a crowd thronging him. One of many times that he did. One of many times he withdrew or hid even from people gunning for him. But he never stopped loving. Jesus isn't capable of not loving. But even while loving perfectly, he wasn't trusting blindly. And it's okay for us to follow his example. In fact, there's times that we're specifically instructed to follow his example. Titus 3.10, Paul says, reject a divisive man after a second warning. He's not saying we get to. He's not saying it's okay if you do. He's saying you really should. It's not good for unity in the body of Christ to have someone who's actively divisive about doctrine or polity or anything else, for the sake of unity in the fellowship, for the sake of unity in worship. If they if they're insist on trying to divide the brethren, ask them to leave. Insist that they leave. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul rebukes the Corinthians for not exercising church discipline. He rebukes them for continuing fellowship with someone that they should have long ago asked to leave the church. Why? That person refused to repent. The Corinthians thought that they were being spiritual. They forgave him for his sin. Paul says it's not enough to forgive him. He's still sinning. No, reconciliation requires forgiveness and repentance, and there's no repentance. It's not love, Paul says, to keep that person 
in the body of Christ with no consequence. It's not loving to them. It's not loving to the person they're sinning against. It's not loving to the rest of us. Do we have to reconcile with the person who hurt us? There's a clear answer in Scripture. We, 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 we wrote it in pencil. I hope that you're ready to write it in pen. The answer is not necessarily. Not without repentance. But we need to be careful, family. Because our flesh wants so bad for not necessarily to just be not. <laughs> no, no, never, never, uh-uh. We want to draw a line. We want this to be an absolute. We want to trade one absolute for another. There, I got no choice about forgiveness. Forgiveness is non-negotiable. Okay, fine. But I'm not going to reconcile. I'm not, I'm not, that's not negotiable, and that better be fine. And it would be fine except for one thing. We said we don't have to pursue reconciliation where there's no repentance, where there's no apology, where there's no change in attitude or action. To repent is to turn away, to go in a different direction. Someone keeps going in a sinful direction. We get to repent of the relationship. We get to turn away. We might need to turn away. But what if there is repentance? We talked about Paul writing to the Corinthians. What did he tell the Corinthians was the purpose of church discipline? The repentance of the one sinning. What happens if he does? 2 Corinthians, Paul circles back and he says, you got to be willing to take the person back. You put them outside the fellowship hoping that that will provoke behavior change, heart change, life change. If it works, you got to welcome them back. And so should we. No, 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 no. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care what they say, what they do, how sorry they are. I'm not going to reconcile with them. Not after what they did to me. Not now, not ever. It's not happening. If, if, if that's what your heart is broadcasting right now in stereo, be careful. Because that's starting to sound a lot like payback. That's starting to sound a lot like vengeance. It's starting to sound like the very thing Paul warned us about in the last chapter, isn't it? Right after he said, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's another not X but Y statement, right? Not vengeance, but reconciliation. He doesn't use the word reconciliation, but I'm, I'm really sure that's what he's pointing at, part of what he's pointing at. Do we have to reconcile? No, listen to how Paul says it. If it's possible, insofar as it depends on you. Do we have to reconcile? No. Do we have to be willing to? I think Paul just said yes. We talked about Leviticus 19.18 earlier. First place that God tells us, love your neighbor. I think it's really interesting. I think it's provocative that the verse right before that, Leviticus 19.17, God says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. That's ESV translation. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Go to them. Talk to them. Insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with them. As much as it depends on you, be reconciled to them. Jesus says the same thing with even more urgency. Matthew 5, the 23rd and 24th, If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Reconciliation is more important than worship, Paul just said. I'm sorry, Jesus just said. As much as depends on you, be reconciled to your brother. I get that in Jesus' example, the roles are reversed. And the exhortation is given to the one needing to seek forgiveness. But I think the principle still holds. As much as it depends on us, Jesus would have us be reconciled. And look, not everything depends on us. We're smart people. We've lived some life. We keep saying reconciliation isn't mandatory. We keep saying not necessarily. Because we know there are some very real barriers to reconciliation that are absolutely beyond our control. Barriers that the other person needs to choose to deal with before reconciliation should be an option. Barriers like ongoing sin. That's, a, that's an easy non-starter. If nothing's changed, then nothing's going to change. <laughs> Denying what happened. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that really happened. I mean, if it happened, I'm sorry, but... Defending or justifying what happened. It was your fault. You made me angry. I couldn't help it. I just, it, it wasn't me. It just, it just happened. Everyone does it. I don't know what the big deal is. Disputing the true impact of what happened. If you would just stop obsessing about it, you wouldn't even remember it anymore. The only reason it's a big deal is because you're making it a big deal. Unwillingness to try to repair or repay what happened. Hey, can we just call it even and start over? You hurt me. You don't get to call it even. I... <laughs> or manipulative attempts to avoid addressing the whole subject. I thought Christians were supposed to love and stuff. And I thought love was supposed to be unconditional. And it sounds like you're putting conditions on love. That doesn't sound very godly. Any of those warning signs, someone's not a good candidate for reconciliation. At least not yet. God can still change their heart. God will change any heart that, that, that's willing to be changed. But until that change happens, if, if that's their perspective on what went down, if, if that's how they're thinking about it and talking about it and the reality that they insist on living in, well, that sounds way more like the people in 2 Timothy 3.5. The people who had a form of godliness but denied the power. But we got to watch out that we aren't the people of 2 Timothy 3.5 who talk all about godliness but deny the power. We have to make sure that we're not denying the power of God to change a heart. If we truly believe that the Holy Spirit can change a heart, we need to be willing to let him change a relationship. Not automatically. Not unthinkingly. Not reflexively but not grudgingly either. We're not called to reconcile reflexively. It would be dumb, and it doesn't honor the Lord. Sometimes we, we, we think we need to do that in the name of love. John Stott, the great British uh, preacher, points out, no, that, 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 that diminishes love. If we can restore, he says, to full and intimate fellowship with ourselves a sinning and unrepentant brother... If we can restore to fellowship someone in whom we see no behavior change, let alone heart change, 
we reveal not the depth of our love, but its shallowness. Because at that point, we're not talking about love. Love wants what's best for others. Letting someone continue in their sin without correction or consequence, that's not what's best. So that's not what's love. I, it, it, I don't know what you call it. Is it sentimentality? Is it fear of man? Is it something else? I don't know. Whatever it is, it's not love. Reconciling unthinkingly, unprayerfully, unwisely doesn't honor God, isn't worship, isn't love. But, but when someone repents and continues in repentance and bears fruit of repentance, there's evidence that the repentance is genuine and ongoing, then reconciliation is our calling. Because then it is worship. And it is Jesus. Ray Ortland, some of you know my personal MVP of last year, pastor who's teaching and writing just blessed my socks off in 2022. He describes it this way. When we see ex-friends reconciling, so removing every barrier that they run and embrace and weep, the beauty gets to us. Not a negotiated settlement, no face-saving baloney, the real thing, honest, unforced, deeply felt. I think we all perceive true reconciliation with awe because it's of God. So how do we know which we're dealing with? Is it worldly sorrow or is it godly sorrow? Is it someone just going through the motions or, or, or genuine, sincere repentance? Sometimes it's easy to tell. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's impossible to tell. Or at least it's really hard. Because, we, because all of those obvious barriers we talked about a moment ago, we can look and, 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 and not see any of them. And we could still be looking at behavior change and not heart change. We could still be looking at a, at a tomb that's been really well whitewashed. Sometimes it's hard for us to know. How do we navigate these situations? How do we pursue reconciliation wisely, carefully? How do we... How do we, how do we heed what Paul tells us to do. Love hopes all things. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. How do we do that on the one hand and, and be wise in our dealings on the other? Not be sloppy with our agape. No magic bullet, because there hardly ever are. But five things to keep in mind as we wrap up this morning. The first is be watchful. Observe the interactions that person has with you. Observe the interactions they have with other people. Look for fruit of repentance and be willing to see it. Your flesh might not want to see it. Be willing to see it. At the same time, look for defensiveness, blame shifting, resistance. Be willing to see that. Be watchful. Be prayerful, point number two. Be prayerful. Ask God to change hearts. Ask God to reveal truth. He's really good at both. Pray that he would. Pray that he would in their heart. Pray that he would in your heart. Pray that he would reveal what's necessary, what needs changed in their lives, that, and pray that he might reveal bitterness or unforgiveness that might be getting in the way in your life. Third thing, be hopeful. Love does hope all things. Important to remember that. Important to remember change is possible. We don't want to believe it, but Scripture says it. Change is possible for them and for you. If we don't believe it, we will not see it. 
Be mindful, number four. Be mindful that change takes time, almost always in almost everything. Change takes time. It might not happen overnight. And be mindful, there might be setbacks. Sin and selfishness run deep in all of us. Someone might be genuinely repentant and still lapse into ungodly behavior. Somebody might be sincerely, prayerfully trying to get it right and still revert back to not Jesus' coping mechanisms. Be willing to consider that one failure doesn't automatically mean that that everything that came before it was a fraud. Maybe it was, but be willing to consider that maybe it wasn't. Also be willing to consider Satan hates reconciliation. Hates it with the white-hot passion of a thousand sons. Why? Because reconciliation points to Jesus. Our reconciliation with one another points to God who sent his son that we might be reconciled unto him. Satan hates reconciliation. He will do anything he can to sabotage it. He will bring accusation. That is his job. He does it well. Finally, last point, be peaceful. With all of this, be peaceful. Because whatever happens, God doesn't waste. Whatever happens, God's going to use it. Because that's what God does. He redeems. And he might be using the whole process to teach the other person about what forgiveness really truly is about. What it is to be forgiven. He might be using the process to teach us what it is to forgive after being betrayed, rejected, wounded. He might be using the whole process to teach us Jesus. He might be using the whole interaction to teach the world about the reconciliation that's available through Christ Jesus. What it is for Jesus to change a heart, to move in a life. This, this stuff is hard to know. And we might get it wrong. But we can be peaceful. Whatever happens, God will bring something good for it. He's promised to. And we can know one more thing as well. God's with us. Through the whole thing, God's with us. 2 Corinthians 5.18, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's told us to preach the gospel of reconciliation, but he's also told us to live the gospel of reconciliation. And where God guides, God provides. So we're not alone in this search. We're not alone in this struggle. God is our supply. And it never runs out because God is love. When we're willing to consider reconciliation, not blindly, but willing to to, to see the possibility. When we're willing to consider reconciliation, not reflexively, but not grudgingly. When we take seriously God's call to be reconciled as much as it depends on us, but at the same time, when we take seriously God's call to, to call sin, sin, and avoid those who are committed to it, You know what we're doing when we do all that? We're imitating Paul. We're being transformed. We're thinking like Jesus. We're acting like Jesus. We're loving like Jesus. We're worshiping. Father, we come before you with humility. We want to get it right, and at the same time, we don't. 
We want you to open our eyes at the same time. We want to just carry on in ignorance. We want to know, and at the same time, if we don't ask the question, we're not responsible for the answer. Pull us out of the weeds, Lord. Lift our eyes heavenward. Remind us that whatever else we think we want, we want you. We want all of you. We want the fullness of the life that you planned for us before you laid the foundations of the world. We want all of your power so that you can get all of the glory due your name. So, Father, when, when what we think we want, when what our flesh is sure it wants in this relationship or this friendship or this interaction or this acquaintance, Lord, would you remind us in those moments that what we want above all is to love and would you show us in those moments what it is to love and would you strengthen us in those moments? Would you supply the love? We ask in your holy name.